It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 28th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The COVID-19 pandemic will never be forgotten, nor will its toll. 9,000 deaths, hundreds of thousands of people falling ill, basic freedoms taken away, confined to our homes, separated from family and friends, lockdowns brought the shutters down on business at times and at other times delivered a fatal blow to commerce and employment. If you were laid off as a result of COVID, you may be feeling a particular injustice, not just at being laid off, but also because of how your redundancy has been calculated. New legislation hopes to shore up that gap and allow government to make a tax-free payment to workers who were laid off and shortchanged because of lockdowns. Let's speak uh, to the Minister of State for Business, Employment and and retail, Damien English of Finnegal TD for Meath West. Good morning, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. As I say, the government is hoping to make a once-off tax-free payment to workers laid off in that situation. Good morning, Michael. Uh, and absolutely, you've, you've probably covered this very well there. Um, that's exactly what it is. They're putting in place the legislation now uh, to be ready for a situation that might arise um, over the next three years and has probably happened for, for a number of people already over the last year. So what this is, Basically, during the restrictions, uh, and uh, by a number, a high number of people were, were laid out from work. And if you're laid out from work, you're technically not in insurable employment. So you're not paying your PSI, you're not contributing, you know, in, in relation to redundancy. So, so that in in the, in the three years before you may be redundant, if you're made redundant, layoff period doesn't count towards redundancy. So that would mean if a person was laid off for all the time during the restrictions over the last two years. Effectively, the redundancy package would be about €1,800 Euro short if they end up being redundant. Um, and we believe that that is unfair, that's wrong. We've worked with the unions and with employer bodies over the last year and a half to prepare for that and to be ready for that. But this legislation reflects that and the state, out of the social insurance fund, will plug that gap and will, will make a tax pay, a tax, um, tax-free payment towards a redundancy if that arises. And hopefully, Michael, with everyone's efforts and with the jobs-led recovery we, we expect to have, mm. it should be, there should, there shouldn't, hopefully the numbers won't be extremely high. Yeah, yeah, but we the, have to allow for that in the, just in case. The forecast for jobs growth is quite phenomenal. Uh, it is. But, but, Michael, I want to point out as well, because I think you touched on it there yourself there, there are a number of people who, who may have been made redundant already. 
mm. uh, over the last two years. Uh, and if, if it's COVID-related and because of COVID, yes, they also are entitled to this payment as well. And we, that will be sorted out when we're up and running with payments in, okay. the, in the second half. Uh, I was just going to ask you, how will it be sorted out? Uh, will you be able to identify those people or will they have to make themselves known to and apply for these payments? Yeah, to be the legislation and the detail of it, we're, we're trying to work out. But more than it will be more than likely that this will be employer-led, so the employers will, will contact and make the application on behalf of their employee. Uh, but there will also be the option for the employee to contact us because not every employer uh, is responsible enough, or, or, or it might might not still be in existence. So there'll be two mechanisms there for employer-led or employee-led. It probably won't be possible for us to be able to track uh, all that back. But we will look at that when, when we get this up and running, if there's a way to do that. But I think most people that are affected would have a redundancy package and would probably be able to make a call to us, to our call centre, to work this out. Mm. Um, okay. And it's uh, 1,860 tax-free. If you're, if you're out on layoff for the whole time. Mm. So mm. If, if we have to work this out because yeah. it'll be different for everybody. But thankfully, Michael, the numbers aren't, aren't that high. We have to set... We initially, we'll, we'll set aside... Um, 10 million for this anyway but I know when we were making the case to government and cabinet a few months ago on this we had to potentially allow for up to 140 or 50 million that might be drawn down on this over three years we don't think that will happen but we are ready for this because it would be unfair to leave anybody short and you know it is something from when we started this off from you know when when, when COVID hit us first and we put restrictions in place where there was a thing called section 12a which prevented employees from triggering redundancy and that was to protect jobs in the long run and to protect the businesses to have those jobs and so it wasn't possible for anybody to trigger their own redundancy so they were prevented um, from leaving and and, and, and having redundancy so this is recognises that uh, and it's to make sure that the employee hasn't lost out some would say to us should the employer not pay this we don't believe that that would be right either because it's not the employer's fault it's not the employee's fault it's COVID's fault and we we, have to deal with that Do we know how many people lost their jobs uh, over the course of uh, the last two years Uh, because uh, as you said uh, there's great hope uh, that those people if they did uh, get laid off as a result of COVID and the lockdowns uh, that there's uh, great hope that they'll get new jobs because I think it's 167,000 jobs that are are forecast to be created over the next two years Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't have the exact number, Michael. Um, we know that, you know, we, we know the live register was, I won't say that 7%. We have worked out that if everybody who had spent time uh, on pop and pop payments long term uh, ended up being maybe done, that you, you would have 100,000 people, but we're nowhere near that, mm-hmm. thankfully, and that won't happen. But we, we, you know, we do track the numbers. We will have reports on this to try to figure out, because um, redundancies, you know, they're not all notified to us. Um, so we, we we will try and track that, but we, we have to estimate numbers. So that's why we originally set aside 10 million and we'll see what happens. But thankfully, even since cause we're working on this legislation for the last 12 months and life has changed dramatically for everybody in the last 12 months. But but the, the one positive is, is, is the recovery and the jobs led recovery means that the numbers of losing their jobs will be a lot less. But in fairness, you'll have business contacting me and I deal with them every week as well. It's only now in the next couple of months we'll find out. Um, how secure those businesses are and how secure those jobs are. We will continue to work with all the vulnerable sectors to, to save every job we can, but there will be possibly some losses and we, we are ready for that now. Okay, the legislation will need to make its way through the Oireachtas before it becomes law. It needs to become law before people can receive uh, these payments. When would you estimate that will be? Um, we were we were sitting yesterday hoping to get in to, mm. to bring it through the houses yesterday. It didn't happen last night. It's on the schedule for next uh, Wednesday and Thursday. 
so I expect to be able to bring through the doll and then the, the Shannon uh, in the next couple of weeks and we hope to be in a position legally to make the payments mm. uh, within the next probably month uh, it'll probably take a little bit of time so maybe February approach. something like that yeah, but mm. it, that'll be the legislation, but it will take probably into, I'd say, April to be ready for the, the, the actual system to be able to pay this money. Right. So we're saying quarter two. Okay, so in around April for people uh, who are yes. hoping uh, that they will qualify for it. All right, uh, uh, and uh, hopefully they'll get one of uh, these new jobs. Uh, an awful lot of new jobs are forecast. They say it's an employee's market and uh, employees, uh, as a result, uh, may be in a position to dictate the terms uh, and it may suit them to work from home. It might suit their employers as well, but uh, as we've been hearing uh, this week, uh, there is this legislation uh, which is uh, going to come into force, I think, it's expected to come into force at least, uh, which will give everybody the right to request to be able to work from home. Yeah, again, Michael, I think you might recall about this time last year, the Tarnister published uh, a strategy to facilitate remote working and to make it a permanent feature uh, when we came through COVID. Uh, because in the last two years, quite a lot of people uh, w- went home to work remotely uh, or were sent home, probably often in an unplanned, uncoordinated way because it happened so quick. But over the last two years, that has turned into a very positive outcome. And we now see the benefits for working remotely, which is either working at home or working in a hub closer to your home. Um, has been The benefits of that have been immense for everybody, for people themselves, for their families, for their communities, because they have much more time to spend with the family communities, for our climate change, mm. for many of our regional towns and villages who are, who are getting a big boost by having people working remotely as well. So all the positives are there. Uh, and the employers uh, can see all the positives as well, while there are still some negatives. The majority of employers that we work with and that we research with can see the benefits and can recognise that remote working is a positive for everybody and are willing to work with their employees to make this happen. So the legislation we're putting in place is to frame that conversation to make sure that anybody who requests to remote remotely gets a fair crack of the whip, that their application is assessed properly and fairly and can be independently judged by the WRC to make sure it's fair. I would say to us, the legislation should go further and we should make it a right that you can work remotely. That's beyond the scope of what a government can do. Mm. And I have to be honest about that. We can't do that. I can't tell your employer, Michael, to, to, to let you work remotely. That is something that I can help frame the conversation through legislation. We can put in place a, a judgment criteria that will be assessed independently. But we can't force an employer to do it because that would be interfering with your contract and that would not be good for job creation or for anything else but we will work with employers and work with employees to try and make it happen put in place legislation put in place supports invest in broadband to make it a lot easier for all this to happen and I've no doubt that because through our yeah. research over the last year with everybody on this there's a lot of interest to make this work and Tell, work me, t- tell me a little bit more about that research uh, because uh, it comes in line with uh, modern technology and uh, the ability to be able to work remotely because of uh, things like the internet and so on. Uh, is this what's happening elsewhere globally? Is this a, a common trend? Because I take that there will be some resistance to it from some of the big multinationals uh, who seem to want a, a culture of people spending as much time on site as possible. They do everything to encourage people to do everything but sleep in the workplace uh, and they would have gyms and canteens uh, where you can eat for nothing or next to nothing and sports facilities and all sorts of, uh, of things uh, for people to entertain themselves but the upshot of that is that they're in the workplace and they end up uh, working more as a, a result and that seems to suit the employers if not everybody. Uh, will you get resistance of that sort? 
uh, I suppose a couple of points there, Michael. It's fair to say those employers are also doing everything they can to, to, to secure talent and to reach employees and to win them over because in many sectors there's actually a war on talent uh, and development of skills and holding on to your team is a major, major challenge. So yes, to do all those things uh, to, to have to keep people at work but also to, to keep them in work and hold on to them. So there's, there's two and a row in there. What we would say is, and, and again, you're right, the research what we've been doing is as an international. We've had a public consultation um, since probably January last year on the possibility of legislation. We've got a lot of submissions on that from employees, from employers, from unions, from employee representative bodies, teasing through all the pros and cons on this. We sat down with, with quite a lot of business people. and uh, We meet those multinationals that you're talking about uh, on a regular basis as well. And they would all tell us they are in a position to try to facilitate remote working. But yes, they do see benefits of having their team on site as well. And they want, they, I think what we would say, the research that shows us here in Ireland and internationally and all over Europe as well is the blended model mm. um, the hybrid so in the office for some days working remotely in your own home or in a hub that we are investing as a country in as well uh, to, to, to be closer to your mm. home and not have to travel to work so but you'll be I able to request to work, you'll be able to request to work from home uh, and there needs to be good reason to deny that request uh, but it, it could be that the employer likes uh, to look on his business and the staff working for him as a family, a family business where there's team spirit uh, and that that leads to creativity. Some of the best ideas come about because of uh, remark off the cuff. Somebody says something and somebody else says something else and go, you know what, there's an idea in that. And that can't happen if people aren't together. Uh, again, uh, there could be resistance to allowing people or allowing people to insist that they work from home uh, if that's what the employers don't want uh, because I don't think uh, these uh, reasons come under the 13 reasons for saying no, do they? Um, a fair point, Michael. It won't be just as simple as an employer, whoever he, he, or, is, he or her are, that they don't like this or they don't want this. That will not be good enough. Uh, under this legislation uh, and under the code of practice that will be published with it, an employer will have to give a business reason around these 13 areas or other ones as well, a business reason why it's not possible to facilitate an employee's uh, ask to work remotely. Well, I've given you one there which, would, which, which could be called the ethos of the business. Yeah, and the culture and so on. And in yeah. fairness, in all the research, both employees and employers have earmarked that as a possible concern that you, you get the right ideas, you get the innovation, you get the drive by being together uh, and, and having those conversations that are, the, as, as, as I said, traditionally at the water cooler. We, we know that too, and that's captured in the research. But again, as you referenced at the start of home around technologies and changes, there's new ways to bring teams together. So it is back to this hybrid model. But it's also back, Michael, and what we're trying to do here is for every organisation to have this conversation themselves with mm -hmm. their employees. And in, in the majority of cases, it'll be worked out within the organisation with employees and employers and they'll, they'll make an agreement. What we're saying is you need to have the conversation. We'll give you a code of practice. There is legislation in place to have that conversation. There should be, every business will have to have their own policy on this written down and worked out and agreed with their employees. So anybody, uh, as in relation to the legal system, the WRC, can look at that policy and can judge it. And to make sure that Michael Reid or Daniel English or Johnny down the road uh, is, gets, gets a fair crack of the whip when they request uh, to work remotely. Now, as a government, we, will have, we have to lead on this in our own departments as well and in the public sector, and that will mean working with our teams as well and working with uh, and investing in technologies to allow that and to facilitate it. But it does not mean, Michael, that everybody will be working remotely from now on, because many jobs, it doesn't suit. 
uh, and it will take time uh, to implement this over a period of time as well. We will bring in more support through budgets in relation to taxation and support. Legislation is there. We have the, 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 our HSA, Health and Safety Authority, are there to advise employers of their responsibilities if their workers are, 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 are based at home and working remotely. So there's a lot in this that needs to be teased through. What we're asking is that employers and employees work together to tease this through and don't just make the decision based on a perceived notion mm. that you actually tease through the benefits of this and work it out what's right for, for you and your business. And you're right, a lot of businesses in Ireland, uh, hundreds of thousands of them, are small family businesses, mm. they're SMEs, uh, and they also are, are under the same pressure to hold on to their talent. So they will also be doing their best to facilitate the requests of their employees. Okay. Uh, I'd like to talk to you uh, about self-employment, if uh, I could, or what's uh, regarded as bogus self-employment, or people who have been misclassified as being self-employed. It follows on from a report from the Joint Committee on Social Protection, uh, and uh, indeed a debate uh, that took place in the Dáil last night. You obviously have your concerns based on your contribution to that Dáil debate last night, Minister, uh, about this status uh, which appears to be incorrect where people are working every day for the same company uh, but are somehow deemed to be self-employed as a result the state foregoes an awful lot in PRSI it is a concern we have, Michael. Uh, we don't think it, it's widespread or the, it has, the, the, the activity in this space has increased much over the last 20 years because as we track this, we don't see too, too many changes. But the nature of work has changed quite a lot. And last night, you were following the debate, you will see the discussion around platform working or, 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 or others would call it the gig economy. So the, the nature of work has changed quite a lot in Ireland and right across Europe. So we, this committee has been focusing in on both self-employment uh, the department, the two departments I'm involved in, the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, the Department of Social Protection, have responsibility in this space in conjunction um, with, our, with our, our labour, our labour laws and our, our revenue and the Department of Social Protection. So what we are doing is trying to increase um, the, the, what they say, the, the efforts in this area to make yeah. sure employees are, are who are employees are paying are, that their PSI is being paid properly and that they have the protections PSI and labour law brings you because that's the whole issue of self-employment uh, misclassification or bogus yeah, self-employment. But this could run to millions or hundreds of millions lost to, to the state uh, at, a, at a time when the state could do with a, a lot more PRSI. Yeah, uh, we a, see the pressure on pensions and so on going in, into the future and yeah. it's as a result of employees paying that self-employed rate rather than a PAYE plate rate but also the employer is not paying uh, the employer PRSI. Yeah, and there's two things, Michael, and I touched on that last night. One is the loss to the state, which which is not um, proven to be as high as, as some would have mentioned last night. To be honest now, it's not in, we don't think it's in those hundreds of millions, but this is something we want to check out and find out, and we're strengthening the unit to check this out. That's number one. But number two, what's really important to me as a minister for in the, in the, in the trade and employment department is that employees are protected, uh, and they're not protected if they're in a bogus situation. Mm. They're, not, they're not being looked after, and we have a duty to look, look, to look after everybody in employment as best we possibly can. Yeah. The two issues I would say, the Tarnish has set up a new committee um, to look into this and to, and to study this. Uh, I will share that, and that will involve the unions, representative bodies, 
the Department of Social Protection, Revenue, WRC, and all involved mm. in this space. So we will we'll certainly be uh, working with the committee on their actions. There were 13 recommendations. Ten of them are already implemented or being worked on. This is also something that I, that I do quite a lot of work on mm. at a European level because it's a concern right across Europe. Uh, and even uh, in two weeks' time, we'll be sitting down with, with my European colleagues on this topic because for the last three uh, European Council meetings we focused on this as well. Because the employee might have to have the same entitlements to sick pay or to holidays or, or whatever the case Correct. may they're, they're be. Uh, because, yeah, uh, and that's very important. But that's more at the uh, lower end of uh, the pay scale for people who are misclassified that way. Uh, we've heard claims uh, very recently uh, that there's uh, some RTE stars who are on very high pay who are misclassified as self-employed. Do you, pay, do you believe people who work for the radio station, uh, uh, the same radio station, uh, every day, 52 weeks of the year, or maybe 30 weeks of the year in the case of RTE, uh, do you believe uh, that they're self-employed? Uh, Mike, I think you're referring to one of the contributions last night uh, that, that, that went into, into this in detail. I, I'm not in a position to be able to say or discuss one individual case because I am responsible for the bodies in this space. So I, I'm not, if it's okay with you, I'm not going to particularly comment. That was There was a big discussion on that last night. Uh, certainly I will do a little bit deeper and check that out and we have a unit, but I'm not going to comment on, on any individual case because it would be wrong of me to do that because of, of my position with, in, in, with, with the state bodies who police this. But do you believe it warrants investigation? Uh, every situation that is brought to our attention or that is raised by the people involved in that situation uh, or that, uh, that our own inspectors are in revenue or social protection field as a concern, it is checked out and will be investigated. So I can say to you that any issue that's brought to our attention that, that where there's a concern would be investigated and is checked out. We have a special unit set up to do this and that's what they would do. And every case is judged on its own merits. Uh, there is case law here, there's legislation, but every individual situation is investigated and is judged on separately. So, we, you know, we, we can research, we say, uh, radio stations in, in, uh, as a whole, but we look at each individual person's contract as well to make that judgment call okay. when this is fully, fully administered. Minister, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail, Finnegale TD for Me, the West, Damien English. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, you may be interested uh, to know uh, that Comreg is uh, to carry out an investigation. This is uh, the communications regulator uh, into the number of scam calls uh, that uh, we receive in uh, this country. And I think we probably do receive a lot of scam phone calls. If they were to speak to me alone, I'd be able to tell them about quite a number of them. Uh, one of uh, the things that I do is I say, will you hang on for a moment? and um, I just put the phone down and eventually come back to it an hour or two later and see what happens. Another thing I always do is I ask them for their bank details, uh, which usually results in them hanging up uh, immediately. Uh, And other times I just hang up uh, because they're nonsense and they're uh, quite... Uh, easy enough for me to identify uh, but they obviously work and it's the thing that I can't understand is how many people must be falling for these things because you get so many of these calls. Uh, The old telephone uh, is something uh, that uh, was different uh, back in the day as they say these days Uh, and there's many of us who are struggling uh, to get up to speed with how our telephones work. Given uh, the removal of a number of the major banks from this jurisdiction and the closure of a large number of bank branches all over the country, uh, thus reducing the visual impact of business supports and access for customers. Can I ask if it might be possible 
to in some way enhance the degree to which customers can talk to their bank without talking to a machine, which has become ridiculous in recent times because everything is done by way of answering machine or a machine of some description, depersonalizing the contact that is necessary between business, especially small businesses, especially the small traders and the personal um, um, customer of the banks. So could I ask if uh, the Tarnish might use his, his, his good offices with the banking authorities to try and address that issue. Oh, wow. That's uh, Bernard Durkin, who's a Fine Gael TD, saying what a lot of people have been saying for a long time. Can we speak to a person? Instead of uh, being told to press one, if uh, we want to fiddle our thumbs, press two. If uh, we understand what's being said, press three. If we've no idea of what's being said. Anyway, Bernard Durkin raised uh, this issue in uh, the Dáil yesterday with the Thonish Dilio Bradker. I think, I think David Durkin's question is a very valid one. I had this experience myself recently. For, for years I've been doing um, internet banking and phone banking and using my card reader at home and all the rest of it. And I found it very good and uh, hadn't been in the bank for a long time. Um, and I went to a bank on Bagger Street because I had to change the pin on my card. Uh, and I had to interact with this very strange large machine that looked like an ATM but wasn't an ATM. And it was very complicated and all I needed was somebody to maybe help me out. Uh, and um, there wasn't anyone there because it was just machines and a security guard. Um, as it happened, I rang up the helpline and the person on the AIB helpline was extremely helpful and I was able to solve the problem. But it did remind me of the value every now and then of the human contact and just having uh, that person uh, in, in the post office, in the bank branch, wherever you may go. Uh, and uh, while we don't have any legal powers around this, uh, I do engage regularly with, with the banks uh, on behalf of businesses and I, I'll... Um, I'll I raise the issue with them for sure. All right. I'm sure people would be happy if the Tarnished did. I'm not sure how far he'll get with it. Uh, there used to be a time where you used to make a phone call and somebody used to answer the phone uh, and you didn't have to wait 25 minutes to speak to somebody for that matter. And God knows what changed. Maybe they've less people answering the phones or maybe there are so many more people in the country that has led to that change. Anyway, that's uh, Tarnished Leo Radker, as I say. He was responding to Fine Gael TD Bernard Durkin in the Dáil yesterday. Michael Reed on LMFM. There's been almost 11,500 responses to a survey of students and staff in third-level institutions about their experiences of sexual violence. The survey was launched by the Minister for Further and Higher Education, Simon Harris, yesterday. Of the 11,500 responses, about 3,000 female students responded to questions about non-consensual sex. Out of the 3,000 women over 1,000, 1,100 that's 34% of uh, the female students who responded to the survey said they had experienced non-consensual vaginal penetration through coercion, incapacitation force or threat of force. There was stories of sexist harassment and hostility uh, and indeed violence. Uh, some of the experiences of student life today, not all of students say that. In fact, the majority of students say they do feel safe from sexual violence, but it is of concern, no doubt. Let's talk to Sorla Brennan, who's the Vice President of uh, the Union of Students, I beg your pardon, Union of Students in Ireland uh, Welfare Branch. A very good morning to you once again, Sorla, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, there is uh, some shocking reading uh, in the survey that the Minister published yesterday. 
Yeah, it absolutely is. But unfortunately, it's entirely reflective of statistics we've been seeing already. Um, like the, this, the, the statistics we're seeing in this report are absolutely shocking and incredibly, incredibly difficult to read. But they're not statistics that like we haven't seen familiar before. Like, for example, we ran a similar survey a few years ago and found similar results. Like the reality is that there are so many of our students who are moving into third level education and experiencing un- unconsensual sexual experiences. And we really are at a stage now where this issue has been highlighted so much that we're in a period where there needs to be action taken now. And Simon Harris's comments surrounding it are obviously very welcome, particularly surrounding like consent classes and stuff. But it will be really positive to see that actually going ahead. Okay. Consent. Uh, appears uh, to be a, a very difficult issue in terms of what is consent, when is it understood that consent has been given, uh, if it is consent that has been stated clearly or if it's a perceived consent. Yeah, of course. Um, like Consent can come in many forms, but the most, the most important thing is that consent is actually given at all. And like the most important thing about consent is that it can be given and taken away in a moment's notice, and that it's an ongoing agreement rather than something that's agreed at the very beginning and then is just implied throughout. And um, the most important thing to these experiences for both parties is communication, and if communication is kind of active, then both parties should be happy with the experience. If there's a breakdown of communication, that's where the problems begin to arise. Right, uh, and if drink is involved, uh, that can complicate it as well. It absolutely can. Now, it is very important to note that if someone is like under the influence of drink or alcohol or drugs, that technically under they cannot, like they can't le- fully consent mm. because their inhibitions are kind of rendered mm. a bit different as a result of drink. It's similar to any other contract. You can't sign a contract if you're under the influence of a substance. Mm-hmm, because they're incapacitated. Uh, and, That's exactly it. Uh, and the students surveyed were asked uh, about their attitudes towards other people having sex or trying to have sex uh, with somebody else uh, who may be incapacitated, as you say, whether that's drinker or drugs, and if they would intervene. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, like, the results we see are kind of quite interesting because a lot of people will talk very generally about like whether or not they will intervene and stuff, um, and it's all entirely reflective of the likes of the um, the bystander intervention effect, where oftentimes it really, really depends on the individual whether or not a person will reach out and assist someone they see and help. Mm. Um, but it is so incredibly important that like people learn how to be a healthy and helpful bystander that if they see some misconduct or something that they know how to safely kind of intervene and support that person in a time of help. There's a wonderful program running, running out of UCC called the Bystander Intervention Program that teaches these skills. Um, and it's just such an important skill to learn in our current climate. Okay, and uh, I suppose when it comes down to it, uh, at the higher end of the scale, uh, what we're talking about here is assault, sexual assault. Uh, and uh, sometimes uh, it's not understood that it's a- an assault uh, by one or other uh, of uh, the people involved, and sometimes both. Uh, but there are myths surrounding uh, both female rape and male rape. There absolutely are. Like there are like much like any topic, there are myths surrounding it. Um and it's entirely our job to kind of 
be able to see through the mist and actually see it for what it is, which it's something that regardless of your gender identity or who you are, it is something that may affect you. Now, unfortunately, we do live in a society where if you identify as non-binary or if you identify as female or trans, the, the likelihood of you experiencing something like this are, is increased. And therefore, it is the job of potential perpetrators to educate themselves to ensure how not to hurt somebody rather than potential victims for educating themselves how not to get hurt. Mm, okay, and I would imagine that a, a lot of that starts with comments that are, are made about people. Uh, I suppose uh, being able to live your life uh, that way is a very new thing. Uh, I think uh, it's true to say uh, that to live openly as a gay person is a relatively new thing. Uh, things uh, that didn't exist for my generation most of uh, the time. Uh, but what about those people who are able to do that now? How successfully are they uh, able uh, to live their lives uh, openly uh, and to identify in whatever way uh, they feel themselves? Uh, because there's a, a lot of comments that are, are made, uh, whether uh, you're one of uh, those uh, minorities or generally speaking, I, I think uh, young women in particular have a, a lot of comments made about them, do they not? Well, we absolutely do. The comments, you've kind of identified two key issues. On one hand, you're identifying a huge part of problematic culture in our society, which is lad culture. All of this stems from the likes of like toxic masculinity and stuff. Mm. But then also for minorities and, and people who identify perhaps a little bit outside the binary would be the likes of homophobia and biphobia and like erasure and erasure of identity. There's so many factors at play here. And while we are beginning to enter a much more tolerant society and a much more accepting society. I myself identify as a queer person um, and I've seen the change over the last while that moved from in my my own experiences from kind of attitudes and stuff into a much more welcoming society but at the same time I'm saying that so many of my closest friends who would identify as female and non-binary still experience harassment on a daily basis in the streets so in some elements we are beginning to improve, but in other elements it is still the same, and, we, and it is entirely up to mm. the, the potential perpetrators to educate okay. themselves on this. Sorla, the uh, line got a bit muffled. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, oh, if you've moved the phone away from your mouth or what it is. Uh, uh, do you want to uh, talk a, a, about uh, yourself personally? Ooh, um, in in context to the survey. Uh, well, yes, uh, because uh, you used a, a turn of phrase uh, there that uh, I think will surprise some of our listeners, uh, at least. You said you identify as a, a queer person. Uh, I'm not sure if you want to uh, talk uh, about what that means to you personally or to explain that to us. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So okay. I, I identify as um, a non-binary person. Um, I am bisexual. I, I use pronouns of he slash them. Um, I've, I've been out for a while now and it's just it's very much just part of our normal life. Mm. Um, I, I thought queer was a, a derogatory term. Um, so, so queer queer is is a term that has kind of been reclaimed, right? Um, it's 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 become an identifying term for a lot of people who would identify themselves with the LGBTQI plus spectrum. Mm. Um, it, it's become a term that some people are comfortable using and some people aren't. Okay, uh, and. Uh, it's okay, obviously, for you to 
uh, call yourself a queer or to describe yourself as a queer, uh, is it right or is it wrong for other people to call you queer? Um, I, th- I, I mean, it's entirely down to the individual. For me personally, because I identify as it, like I have friends who would be similar, I would be happy for some people to say like, oh, I'm a queer person. Whereas I, I, I've also experienced it in a derogatory way, but it's not something that people really say in a derogatory way anymore. Mm, okay. Uh, and you said you identify as he, them, is that what you said? Yeah, okay. Um, uh, Forgive me, but that is confusing for uh, a lot of us. Can you explain to us uh, what the difference between he, uh, which uh, you were born male, uh, and he, them is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I I was born, uh, I was born male, uh, I was born male and grew up under the brand that I was kind of a CIS man. Um, and in more recent years, kind of came to terms with that, like, like identified as non-binary. Now, there's there, it's it's an incredibly nuanced situation. Um, it has a lot to do with kind of masculine and feminine identity and stuff. Mm. Um, so the the pronouns that I am comfortable using would be he them. But in these scenarios, gender is something that, when we look at it, it's meant to be incredibly fluid and down interpretation by an individual. So it really depends on person to person what they identify with, what those okay. tables are. So you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is it right to say you don't necessarily identify yourself as a man, uh, but you do identify yourself as a man and as a, a woman uh, and both at the same time? No, I don't identify as a woman at all. Okay, sorry. I don't, okay. I don't use female pronouns. Okay, so, okay, I beg your pardon. So, 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 why them? What's the difference? Um, them is a new gender neutral term. I know I don't. I know I don't one hundred percent identify as, as as a man, and that's kind of where it right. comes from. Okay, okay, uh, and and please forgive me. Uh, I, no, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I, I think it is worth asking questions because they are genuine questions, and I, I think they're questions that confuse a lot of people. But. Um, uh, is it that confusion that people have about how you identify? Uh, and I'm not sure um, if it's genuine confusion uh, that leads uh, to uh, ill treatment of you or discriminatory treatment uh, of you or sexist treatment or sexually harassing you or whatever. Uh, but is confusion at the heart of it or is it something else, you think? Um, once again, I think it comes from a case-by-case basis. Um, it's 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 very much a thing where, and it's going to be entirely dependent on the person who may be kind of delivering any intolerance as well. Mm. Like for me, there isn't a lot of confusion surrounding it. Like there's no confusion surrounding being non-binary. It isn't a oh, I don't know if I'm a man or a woman. It's very much like no, I know I'm not either. Therefore, it's them. Like there's no confusion there. Whereas how people interpret that and react to it, I mean, it's entirely down to the individual. I've met people who've been incredibly understanding it. I've mm. met people who said, like, like I've met people who ultimately just believe that my gender identity does not exist. Okay. Um, and that's, like, that is an attitude that needs to be changed. Like, we live in a society where this is becoming incredibly normalized and, mm. like, there's so, so many people. And, like, this is something we've been seeing in different cultures for mm. hundreds of years. Okay. It's now society's job to adapt to it. 
Okay, and that's the purpose of me asking you these questions, Sorla, just to make it that cl- make it clear. I think there's a value in asking these questions and, no, hear, and, and hearing your answers. Uh, I, I I imagine, uh, and again, forgive me for making assumptions, but I imagine you have a, a lot of friends. I imagine you're very popular because uh, I think you'd have uh, to be popular to be voted vice president uh, of welfare for USI, uh, and uh, you've undoubtedly got a, a strong group of friends around you. Would that be right? Absolutely. Some incredibly, incredibly, incredibly kind of helpful, important people in my life have been incredibly supportive of like coming to terms with become, being non-binary stuff because I only came out as non-binary last year. So there's people I would still work with who really supported me during that time. And it's, it's the student community is a very, very much a inclusive and tolerant and supportive community to be a part of. Okay. Uh, and you're treated differently, are you, uh, uh, this year, or this over this last year, than you would have been the year previously? Um, I don't think so. I okay. think people mm. are more, like, there's definitely a level of I'm more comfortable in myself, I've noticed. Okay. Um, but uh, people, people kind of, because of the people I'm working with, they're very, it doesn't really matter to them what I identify as, they just see me as me. And okay. I think that's like the best attitude you can have on approaching things like this. Okay. All right. Look, thank you uh, very oh, much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, not the conversation that I had expected to have, uh, but uh, I think a very interesting uh, conversation uh, and uh, really do appreciate you talking to us like that, Sorla. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Sorla Brennan uh, is the Vice President uh, for Welfare with USI. That's the Union of Students in Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you were listening to us uh, yesterday, you'd have heard us talking about how households over the course of uh, the next year, uh, depending on uh, the type of household, can expect the cost of living uh, to increase by between a thousand and three thousand euro. It's exactly the point that Independent TD for Roscommon Galway, Michael Fitzmaurice, was making in the doll yesterday, and he's on the line with us now. Good morning to you, Michael Fitzmaurice, and thanks for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, you made uh, some uh, very interesting points about how that increase is going to be made up. You were looking at the price of green diesel. It was 41 to 42 cent. That's gone to 92 to 94 cent. Uh, you're looking at the cost of uh, petrol and diesel in general, and indeed uh, the cost of fertiliser to farmers, uh, the price of things are going through the roof. Yeah, well, unfortunately, um, over the last, in 2020, March 2020, um, we would have seen the price of green diesel, as you rightly pointed out, at 41, 42. Um, it has gone to 92. And being honest with you, Michael, it's, uh, there's only one way this is going is up. Mm. Um, and, you know, people might say, I wish that's just the agricultural sector. The bottom line on it is, is that the tractor that works in the field is going to have an effect on the person that eats in the city or the large town or whatever, because the price of food will go up. And that's putting an extra pressure on those people. We've also seen, um, and I was very interested in the Tisha's, or the Honest's comments yeah. back to me yesterday, um, I brought up about the price of gas, and yeah. I think it's a, it's a major failure in Europe that we have basically put our eggs in one basket. Um, we have basically Vladimir Putin has the control of the tap whether he turns it up or turns it down in the line of gas, because most of Europe is supplied by gas. Mm. The Taoiseach came back and he said, well, look, at it. for Ireland, we get some off our own coast, which we do, mm. a minimal amount. Um, and he said, uh, the UK and Norway. But 
Um, why has that gone up so if it's not affecting, say, from Russia? Um, the reality of it is is that the UK are in bother itself, if you look at, yeah. their, at their situation, and um, other European countries are in trouble. Did it make sense to you? I, I, I was scratching my head, uh, because uh, 52% of the electricity produced in the country comes from natural gas, and I think it was Eamon Ryan who was saying that the reason natural gas is more expensive is because of the Russians. The Tonsta said pretty much the opposite yesterday, uh, saying that it comes from Britain, Norway and Qatar. Well, um, if you listen to the Tanishta, it's basically, it's people cashing in on uh, Russia's, um, basically, Russia getting more money. Um, if that's, if you're to believe that, but I don't actually believe that, being honest with you. Um, I heard him and Ryan on the radio the day before, and I just said, what world um, is that guy in? Um, when he talked about, you know, offshore wind. Yes, great, offshore wind will come. 1% at the moment, that's the reality. Mm. We have to talk about today, next week, and for the next six months. And um, if you do the normal, like everybody talks about, and rightly so, and mm. I have no problem with it, people that are um, on low income, people that get fuel allowance. But what about, as I said to the Tonish the, the, the people that get up early in the morning, the people that are driving say your car at the moment you're paying 168 um, your say the home heat nail um, every side mm. of it you go your electricity it's probably yeah. approximately 3,000 uh, per yeah. house well it's going to be five to 600 I, I think uh, extra this year generally uh, for people to heat their homes uh, and it'll be about 800 extra generally uh, for groceries it seems over the course of the next yeah, year but, but on top of that um if you look, there's electricity, there's heating, but there's also a lot of people uh, that drive to work and they're getting heat everywhere. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we, we had a health pandemic. At the moment, we have an economic pandemic where people are going to be tightly squeezed. And, you know, it's very easy to say, I heard the, the Tonish to say the other day, well, um, those in the private sector need to give pay rises. And yeah, it'd be great if they could. But we must remember that there's a lot of doors closed, as I know in my neck of the woods, mm. and I presume in your own neck of the woods, with the pandemic that people are after coming through. And I think that, you know, there's solutions to this, in my opinion, right? Mm. Um, if we were happy to take the, the take that we took from diesel and from petrol at 120 in March 2020, why don't we say, well, for the time being, I'm not saying this is forever. I am just saying that this is for a period of six months or a year until this sort of hump goes. That why don't we go back to that and give the bit of relief to the, to the, to the sectors? Because, because there's only one way to do that, and that's to reduce the rate of VAT. Uh, and the EU directive is that you have to have a standard rate and two reduced rates, isn't it? Well, not necessarily so. There's, there's VAT and there's duty. Mm. And we were happy to take... 120, which was the price of, of diesel. We'll we just take diesel as an example. In March 2020, we were had the take that we had out of that was something like, I don't know, 60 to 65 cent out of the 120, right? And if we were happy to take that, why are we now looking to take a bigger proportion? And all I'm saying mm. is just the difference between both of the proportion, which would alleviate an awful lot, because we have to be very careful. People, in my opinion, cannot sustain what's going on at the moment. They will need extra wages, to put it very bluntly. Is the extra money there for that? That's a good question. 
And on top of that, if we see this hyperinflation coming, the danger is interest rates. And if interest rates starts going up, those people are going to get a double uh, to be, they'll get a double blow for the simple mm. re- reason their mortgages and all that will go up. So this needs to be handled very carefully. Is this the your one, fault? The is one it, flaw I see in all of this is that Europe, as Europe, we have become the salespeople of Europe. We don't want to touch anything. We don't want to have our own natural mm. gas because, you know, even though now that they want to bring it in under green, but a few years ago, it was the dirtiest mm. thing ever. Or the nuclear um, we, we power that Marie McGuinness has been talking about, which you mentioned yesterday. But is all of this your fault? Uh, the Taunas just seemed to be saying it was the opposition's fault when he responded to you yesterday. I'm not sure uh, if he included you in that, uh, but he, he was saying uh, that the opposition voted about income tax reductions uh, and uh, that... Well, first of all, in fairness to the, in fairness to the like, I'll speak for myself, yeah. but in watching the opposition... They voted for a reduction that they were in favour of, of, of uh, basically giving people a break in, in income tax. And they also voted in favour um, of the social welfare bill to help those people. Mm. Um, and look, at I can't account for every politician okay. of the voters. Yeah, but the Tonisha in- did make a, a kind of uh, yeah. strange statement. Uh, he said that the government has put €800 Euro, uh, more into people's pockets this year through income tax relief. Uh, but he went on to say this, if we could take a, a listen to him for the next 30 seconds. And again, I'd remind members of this House who are complaining about the high cost of living. Uh, these are the same people in this House who voted against the budget, voted against those income tax reductions, uh, who complain about the fact that we have a high cost of living and yet would have middle-income people earn less, take home less each day. Uh, if the opposition parties were the government, uh, the average middle-income family would have €800 Euros less a year in their pockets every year. Uh, and that's, um, that, that's, that's the re- reality of, of that. Um, there's also been the, 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 the real rent freeze, uh, 2% or, or less. Um, Thank you, the freeze so on childcare fees. And there'll be improvements in the Susie grant, uh, which will come in later in the year. We could hear some laughter there. I think it was Pierce Doherty. Yeah, uh, a, a rent freeze is now a two percent increase. I think Michael, what's you know what's going on yeah. there is there's a spat going on as you'll probably as you've probably covered yourself and you'll yeah, see in the media. Yeah, yeah. There's a spat going on about who's going to be the biggest party, yeah. and it's one jibing across it. That are, in my opinion, this isn't a jibing issue. This is an economic issue. This is, um, and some of this is outside government control. Do you understand me? I'm not of saying course, yeah. that the price of gas. I'm not one of these people that will mm. blame a government for everything. But what a government has to do is lead in a time of crisis. And what I am saying is because of the, the likes of the price of gas gone the way it is, because of the threat of what's going on in the Ukraine and Russia at the moment, mm. diesel prices are soaring. We always see that sometimes if there's any threat of war. Yeah. And what a government needs to do is not go throwing jibes across about who's going to be the biggest party in the next government. It won't be me, but um, there's one, you heard the jibes going on and you heard the people mm. commenting back and you have a good idea who was throwing it across at each other. I was like piggy in the middle looking at both of them. But anyhow, um, the bottom line on, on this is you find solutions on how to look after your people. Like, you know, they brought out the likes of the PUP, yeah. which was a good thing. They brought out the WSS, which was a good thing. And let's praise what's good um, in a time of a health pandemic. Now we need to look at the economic situation to bring our people over, because this won't last forever. It will, you know, this will level out in time, but what you cannot do is paralyze our country. And by do, if this keeps going the way it's going, because I'm, I, I'm fairly well on the ground with say the plasters and the block layers, I'd know a lot of them around the place and people in business. 
I'm listening to people in business now that make sheds and stuff like that are saying orders are being cancelled. I'm listening to, you know, the, the plaster or the bricklayer yeah. that said, well, we won't be able to come to you for three or four months. Is uh, now ringing the person and saying, well, you know, by the way, this job was cancelled or whatever. And these are the little signs that you don't uh, particularly need. Or if, these, if this keeps happening, what you could do is let a country slip down a road of recession when you need to give it just that little bit of a boost for the six months. I'm not talking about it forever. Yeah. Let's take it three months at a time, a quarter at a time, and try and resolve it. But, but, you know, this thing of basically playing politics with something isn't acceptable. All right. All right. Got to leave it there. Thank you indeed, Michael, for joining us on the programme okay. this morning. Michael Fitzmaurice, Independent TD for Roscommon Galway. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, you may remember, if you were listening to us on Wednesday, how uh, the Taoiseach uh, said on Tuesday he was not in favour of commissioning uh, commission of inquiry into the circumstances uh, that resulted in the deaths of 23 residents from COVID-19 at the Dalgan House Nursing Home in Dundalk. I'm not convinced about commission of inquiries being the optimal way to... to, to unfortunately, uh, investigate these issues. They go on much longer than people would have anticipated or expected. We, I do, there's a genuine issue there, don't get me wrong. And I think the uh, department are examining a variety of options as how best to respect uh, and meet the needs and, and um, um, concerns of the families of, of those in these grants. But there may be, all, but there, sorry, there may be more than... I know deputy, but I just have to. But people aren't going to be satisfied with, with an inquiry that goes on six years either. I'm just trying to be honest with the house. I mean, but some can and some do is what I'm saying. And I think there might be other ways of doing it is what I'm saying. There might be a better way of doing it. That's the Taoiseach, Michal Martin. He was uh, responding to and interacting with uh, Fine Gael TD for Loud and East Mead, Fergus O'Dowd. Now let's speak to Emma Duffy. Uh, whose father died in Dalgan House in May of 2020. Good morning to you, Emma, and thanks for joining us on the programme once again. Uh, what did you make of uh, the Taoiseach's comments? Uh, morning, Michael, and thanks again for raising um, this issue. Uh, really, really appreciate it. That's just on behalf of all the families, I do want to say that. Um, just really disappointed, to be honest. You know, we've been promised a mechanism to get to the truth for two years now, so I just feel very let down. Put in countless requests. There's tons of information that we have, and we're not investigators trying to line up different versions of the truth and mm. really just to, to lay that out. And um, we were told we would get a mechanism for the truth. So, if an inquiry isn't, why is there not different means to get the truth being laid out in front of us? He's saying the department's investigating, but we're two years on nearly, um, and, and promises were made way back when this was in the, the doll every day and now it's not and it's kind of a case of feels like it's trying to you know put it down the rank of order of importance and now that we're coming out of this and living with something that is COVID and still impacting vulnerable people now let's let's get moving let's get these these issues out and and um, let's learn learn from this and uh yeah have some accountability for lives this isn't just a case of neglect or a case of this is people died <laughs> 23 mm. people a government institution had to take it over and, right. and we have so much information 
and, and we can see the shocking nature of it. Now, um, the Taoiseach did say that there may be other ways of doing this. Yes, um, but, I appreciate but, that. But, but, but he, he did most certainly rule out a commission of inquiry. Did that come as a surprise to you? Because you've been campaigning for this for a very long time. You've met with the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, and Mary Butler, a junior Minister for Health. You met with Paul Reid, the Chief Executive of the HSE, and you met with the head of the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland Hospital Group, that's Ian Carter. And it was the Royal College of Surgeons that took over the home. Uh, the Taoiseach was saying to Fergus O'Dowd in uh, the interaction that we heard there between the two, more or less to paraphrase, where do you start? and where do you stop? The point that Fergus O'Dowd was making to the Taoiseach was that Dalkin House is unique. It was the only nursing home in the country to be taken over by the HSE. Yes, exactly. And even for that reason, you know, that was, because it was so unique in that situation and, you know, we would say, obviously, then it was one of the worst in the country. So if you look in depth at what happened in one of the worst, you will, there will be learnings there. Um, as you said, the RCSI had to come in and take it over. It's not clear why that happened. You know, we're still trying to struggle and, and grapple with what ha- what happened there in the days before. And, you know, that was taxpayers' money being used to do that. Um, and, and we should learn from that because, as I said, um, you know, these are private institutions. They're, they're people on the ground doing fantastic work, but ultimately they're there to make a profit. We're all ageing. 80% of the country is private nursing homes. I think we all should be standing up and saying all lives matter. Uh, we need to make sure there's changes for older people going forward. And that's what I'm looking at a picture of my dad now. And I'm just thinking I never want anybody to go through what he went through. We were at the window for the 14, over 14 days that he had COVID, which was a tiny little blessing because we could see. And Michael, this narrative around, oh, they were old anyway. It's awful. We should never be Your dad to wasn't that. old. <laughs> Your no, he wasn't old. He was 72, you know. Yeah. And when we found out he had COVID... To be honest, I was sure he would be fine, but I didn't understand the state he was in on the day he got COVID, because when I look at his notes two weeks prior, he wasn't in great shape, Michael. Your dear dad, Oliver, 72, when he passed away. He'd only just turned 72, had he? He had, and he Mm. was just the quietest, most beautiful, lovely soul you'll ever meet. You were at the Um, nursing home, you wanted to hold his hand. uh, Oh, yeah, and that yeah. is, uh, I mean, anybody yeah, who's la- la- lost a loved one knows During that they this want time, to, uh, And my heart goes out to anybody who's lost anybody yeah. in COVID. But you were standing outside. You, you couldn't my go in. My sister was, yeah. yeah. Well, there was no one with him at the end. Like, we were there for two weeks and 90% of the time he was on his own. And he was struggling with that. You know, and I think anybody out there in the world who's had COVID and mm. symptomatic, you know, you're, yeah. you're not in the best. And then when you're already, uh, you know, compromised anyway... Um, it was a very hard thing, thing to watch, but we had no clue. We had not a notion. This narrative around everybody mm. knew we were in crisis. The families didn't know, and we had three able-bodied mm. uh, sons and daughters able to accommodate. So, Just go back so, a little uh, bit in time, if yes, you would, Emma, because course, your, your, yeah. your father died in May of 2020. Uh, right, under those yeah. terrible circumstances, a young man, 72 years of age, nobody with him, you're outside, all you want to do is hold his hand as he passed. Uh, but that didn't happen. But uh, this was a, a problem uh, that had predated that uh, by many, many weeks and had peaked over the Easter weekend. Tell us yes. what happened over the Easter week, uh, weekend. Uh, well, there were text messages from Mairead McGuinness, so the Fine Gael MEP, to the Minister for Health. Yeah, the frustrating thing for us is we were getting emails to say everything's under control, all's OK. And we thought, OK. And, you know, I was getting a picture of Dad on Easter Sunday 
sitting on a communal table with 13 under res- residents and apparently the place was running with COVID. So I don't know what guidelines were put in place to do that. So we really didn't stand a chance, to be honest. Um, but but we were families being were told being told one narrative, uh, and then there was crisis happening and appeals for help. But then there's gaps in the appeals for help as well. You know, f- from Dagan to Hickwood, it's really not very clear. But at that point, you're right. The alarm bells did get raised on Easter Sunday, and there was a serious phone call on the Monday, highlighting you know calling for the army to come in. Uh, talks of dehydration and um, the doctor not being present I could see that in my own father's notes for instance he has and there was no doctor doctor there to deal with them um, and all the while we were doing what we were told and sitting at home and thinking well you know the powers that be of mechanisms to uh, to help these nursing homes and we know the, the hospitals weren't overflowed we know there was capacity there um, and it took from Easter Sunday to Friday for that change to happen. And there's big gaps in the information to say, why did it take so long to affect that change? And also on the Friday, what prompted the director of nursing to land on the door of Dalgan and to walk in and go, okay, we're taking over the place. There's nothing there to document that. And we're living with all these unknowns. So we don't know what, you know, Ian Carter said on the phone to us, his only comment was people need to be fed, people need to be cared for. People needed medical attention. That's a very scary thing to know your your father was in there and you're thinking, what the hell was going on? And as I said, what shocked me, Michael, when you get your loved one into a nursing home, you don't want to put them there. We had no choice. Dad was in the hospital. He wasn't allowed to be taken home. And we're all aging. We never in a wildest dream wanted Dad to go to a nursing home. And it's like I have, I, anybody who has children and they're looking for a good crash. I, I, I think of it like that. You're just so grateful to get them in somewhere good that you've heard a good reputation about it. And you don't, you assume the government has strong regulations in place for our most vulnerable citizens. And now that I know so much, the regulations are absolutely atrocious. And at the end of the day, they're private institutions there to make a profit. We should be holding them to the highest account in terms of regulation and staffing numbers. And, you know, they were allowed to dip to have one nurse on duty for 81 residents. One nurse. And, the, and anybody who's been in a nursing home knows the level of care that is required. There's so many learnings to come from this. And, you know, we feel now is the time to, to really start to bring this to light. To be honest, we met with Minister Donnelly 15 months ago. And my last comment to him, because I was in the meeting with him, I said, Minister, respectfully, you've said that you would give us a mechanism for the truth. When will you come back with that mechanism? Will it be weeks? Will it be months? Will it be years? And he said, no, it will be weeks. That was 15 months ago. 15 we months have emailed him, okay. we have contacted him, okay. yeah. and it's radio silence. Well, that's not good enough. Well, the, the silence was broken on Tuesday by the yes, Taoiseach. Yes, and we're, we're very grateful for all the support we're getting from the local TDs and from everybody out mm. there because, you know... Okay. Emma, the Taoiseach has said no. There won't be a commissioner of inquiry. It'll take six years. Where do you start? Where do you stop? All that sort of... He's ruled it out. You said You said at the beginning of the conversation uh, that uh, you're speaking on behalf of uh, all of the families of the 23 people who passed away from COVID in Dalgan House. And I, I know that you've all been communicating over the course yes. of the last few days since the Taoiseach made his comments. Uh, maybe you'd conclude uh, again by speaking on behalf of uh, the 23 families, uh, but speak directly to the Taoiseach. What's your message to me, Hall Martin? Well, 
we disagree and we're going to keep going. We are not going away and we were calling all the public to rally behind us and support us because we're all ageing and we're doing this for learnings. We're doing this for a positive reason and we cannot forget what happened in that awful time when that first outbreak happened because these people are still living with it. It's not going away for those people and we will not stop. We are, we, we're in it for the long game and for the good fight and all we want is the truth to come out because the truth will lead to reform, will lead to change and will lead to accountability. People cannot die in this way and no lessons to be learned and no accountability. It's not right, Michael, and, you know, as Irish people and how we connect and all of the strength we've shown during COVID and the sense of community, you know, we really want people to rally behind us as well and support us. And, and, And yourselves, just want to say thank you for giving us the time as well. I think Oliver Crewe would be very proud of his daughter this morning. Emma, thank you indeed for talking to us. Michael, God bless. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you very much, much indeed. Bye That's bye. Emma Duffy, uh, who is representing the families of uh, the 23 residents of Dalgan House who died from COVID. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, most students uh, do feel safe, uh, but uh, this uh, survey that we spoke about earlier certainly gives uh, a worrying picture of a student life for some uh, who have to put up uh, with sexualized comments referring to race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, religion, or trans or non-binary identity, sexist hostility, derogatory remarks, and that sort of thing, sexual hostility, gender harassment, crude derogatory remarks. Uh, unwanted sexual attention, sexual coercion, sexual harassment via uh, emails and text messages and uh, the internet and all of that. Um, Bisexual students uh, who say that uh, they're more likely to be harassed uh, and uh, that follows uh, down uh, with, uh, again, females uh, saying and they'd not told anyone because of the shame or embarrassment that they felt and felt that people didn't want to know. As we heard, a third of uh, the women who responded to to, uh, this survey about non-consensual vaginal penetration uh, said that that had happened to them. In other words, that they'd been raped. Sexual touching, oral sex, vaginal penetration, anal penetration, being made to perform anal or vaginal sex, attempted oral, anal or vaginal sex. Uh, It's... uh, Sort of an unseemly talk on the radio, uh, but if that's uh, the lives our young people are living, well, uh, it's a conversation we must have. Let's continue the conversation. Nolene Blackwell is uh, the director of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Good morning to you, Nolene, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, are you Good surprised morning, by any of that? No, uh, no, I'm not surprised. You see, we were hearing uh, on the, so you know, we run the National 24-Hour Helpline. We were hearing from people, we were hearing from people who came into us, who were in college, mainly students, about uh, about harassment, about rape, about sexual abuse of various kinds. And still there was nothing showing up on the university radars a few years ago. You and I actually, you were one of the people who I spoke to first about this, about how troubling it was that there were kind of less than 30 complaints through all the universities in Ireland about this uh, a few years ago. The students' unions were telling us we were doing consent workshops with student unions. They knew there was a problem. But, but this actually is a really important piece of evidence partly because it's objective, a good survey, well done, well thought through, and also it is government commissioned. So it is commissioned by the authorities, recognising there's a problem and and producing the evidence. So while we're not surprised by it, Mm. you're still kind of... 
you know, you're still really concerned uh, that that this is the case. About 8,000 students um, and about 3,500 staff took the time and the trouble to fill in this survey. Um, And, of course, there is something about it. You didn't have to fill in the survey. So those who filled it in were more likely to need to tell their story. Um, Mm. And a lot of people said they they had no problem. But it was really interesting. And some of the um, issues, so the range of sexual abuse that people suffer is the range we see throughout society, from the verbal harassment, from the derogatory comments, from the mixture of racism and sexism, all of that, right through to very, um, like in in criminal terms, uh, cases that would be considered at the top end of crime. But and, and what I do think is interesting, though, is it also shows up the trends that, you know, if, if you're that bit more vulnerable, you're, you're more likely to be, uh, to be abused as well. So those of minority sexual orientations feel more at risk of that kind of harassment and bullying. Uh, women feel more at risk. Uh, in terms of staff, for instance, it was really interesting that older men were very happy with the system. A lot of, most older men uh, in university staff understood and thought the system was good and thought all of the supports were right. Young staff, young female staff did not think that. Uh, And throughout, uh, they all recognised that the systems for dealing with it, what to do if there was a problem, that they were ineffective. So all of those things are important information because in, in, to their credit, all of the higher education institutes now uh, actually uh, heavily encouraged by the um, Higher Education Authority and by and by uh, the Minister for Higher and Further Education and all the other things. But th- there's huge encouragement from government, but all of the institutions are uh, putting in place systems to ensure that there's more uh, understanding of consent. And the survey shows that people were a bit more conscious mm. that there was talk of consent around campuses. Uh, they're putting in place better systems and structures to help people who are at risk. Now, it's very early days. Yeah. This was the first survey. It was taken during COVID in April of 2021. Uh, the colleges are really only back this year. Yeah. It's a very That's new a initiative. Point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I think uh, it's probably nature, it's only natural that as you get older you find it difficult to understand how young people think uh, or or, uh, to understand uh, their thinking on sexual activity. Uh, We were speaking with a non-binary student, uh, Vice President uh, of Welfare with USI earlier on uh, and uh, definitely would have to say that there's a a generational gap and maybe that's part of the problem when it comes to protecting young people because we are talking about predominantly young people. Uh, Could you look on the results of this survey uh, in two ways as the glass half full uh, because it's terrible some of the things that are going on and the risk that there is to young uh, people but also uh, that it's half empty but half full because at least uh, it's been established and now there's a chance for us to understand what's happening and to act on it and to do things to put measures in place to protect people. Yeah and I would definitely be of the glass half full uh, thing to recognise that actually you can't be complacent because the half that's empty is people who are 
being harmed. And that's not good enough at all and can't be left to stand. But the fact that actually the survey shows that people were conscious there were consent initiatives, the fact that whatever about the survey, we know for a fact that there is funding coming from government to universities specifically um, ring-fenced in order to build cultures of zero tolerance in our universities. And the fact that as far as we can see um, in Dublin Crisis Centre, and and I have a particular interest in this myself because we're very associated with UCD in various ways, but like in all of the colleges that we can see, there is more of an impetus, more of an understanding at the institution level that it is as bad to have an unsafe campus from the point of view of sexual harassment and abuse as it would be to have a campus that didn't produce decent intellectual research, for instance. So there is a greater um, building of understanding and it is going to take time in the same way as throughout our society. From time to time, there is a greater understanding that we have neglected respect in the area of uh, our sexual Mm. interactions or our sexual activities with others um, and that that has caused real harm. But that's only dawning on us as a society, Michael. So it's not surprising uh, that it is only dawning on on the mini society that is universities, particularly as so many of them are still going to university. So many of our young people are Mm. still going to university without any decent formation. And I call it formation rather than education. It's not, you know, teaching you bodily parts, but formation around what healthy relationships look like, what respect for another person looks like. And so many of them are still more informed by hard pornography and and by what they hear in in little groups with their friends and for, and the misinformation they have about body image and what is good for themselves and others so this it's not this can't be solved at um, university level actually i heard minister Simon harris say this same thing yesterday mm-hmm. but we all know it it has to be much sooner, but at least probably at national at school state. level. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you agree, but I, I think it's probably a, a very positive aspect of the survey that it, it looks and questions people about a variety of issues across the spectrum, from how we talk and how we think to how we act and yeah. sexual assault and rape at the upper end of, of all of this. I will just give you your number, which is one eight hundred. 77 because these issues can affect a lot of people when they're here when they hear talk about it on the radio and there is somebody to talk about these things too after if you wish to on that helpline that's the Dublin Rape Crisis Helpline and we'll repeat that number in a moment but were you surprised at how commonplace it seems rape of young student women appears to be. Uh, there were 11,500 respondents to the survey. 3,000 uh, women uh, responded to the question about non-consensual sex, which uh, by any other name is rape. And a third yes. of them said that they had been raped. 
Yes, uh, n- not, not surprised by that and it's consistent with other surveys done with work done by the Union of Students in Ireland with um, Active Consent which operates out of NUI Galway. Uh, so that information has been out there before uh, that, that in fact that, that is the reality. And again, it's a reality which often um, you, you feel is so preventable. Uh, because that's that's not normally what people want to do. Nobody wants to come away from it, but that is consistent with uh, with general information in relation to sexual abuse, um, and it is consistent with what student surveys elsewhere have found as well. And um, again, just to say, Michael, this is obviously a, a small percentage of students as well. You you didn't have to answer it. It was done during a time when the students weren't on campus, so it was hard even for people to motivate them to answer the survey. Uh, but but nonetheless, it is not uh, it's it's not an out there figure. It's a figure that we know about. And it is a figure that, again, we would find from time to time, particularly at this time where there is still such um, a sorrow around the death of Ashling Murphy and so many questions arising from it. So many people are coming back, even to our therapists, and saying, you know, things that I thought were no point mentioning because it was a long time ago. I need to mention it now because it actually hurt me. Mm. So the truth is... It's still not, we're nowhere yeah. near where we need to be, but we have started on a journey and that's, mm. that is some consolation. And to reiterate the positives of the survey, the majority of students who responded said they felt safe from sexual violence, but 1,100 young women told this survey that they'd been raped. That's far too many. I mean, one is too yeah. many, but that's, it's, it's very, very upsetting really, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, it, it, it is. But do you know what? We this time yesterday we didn't have that information. Yeah, that's and the last uh, half and half now that yeah. we have it, we we can say that that's absolutely unacceptable and not good enough, and we can fix it. Okay, or we can reduce it. All right, yeah. just repeat your helpline number, Nolan one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight. It's a free phone number. It's open twenty four hours a day. There's very skilled professional people at the end of uh, that line. Uh, who would be more than happy to listen and indeed to talk, advise if that's what you want. Uh, and as I say, it's 24 hours a day, run by the Dublin Rape Cry Centre, one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight. Nolene, thanks as always for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. That's uh, Nolene Blackwell, who's Chief Executive Officer of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the Taoiseach attended uh, the Irish Farmers Association AGM in Dublin yesterday, uh, telling delegates he's a lifelong friend and champion of Irish agriculture. He said that Irish farming and forestry is at a crossroads where threats and opportunities uh, abound. Michal Martin said farmers have a choice now to accept the challenge that climate change poses or to resist. Let's hear what farmers had to say to Michal Martin. Brian Rush is uh, the Deputy President of uh, the IFA and he's on the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, Brian, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Do you accept uh, that the Taoiseach is correct in saying that they're the two choices in front of you? I do, yeah. And I suppose what, what we said to him and what I said to him yesterday was that there's no one, and there was no one in our room yesterday, and there's very few farmers out there that don't accept that we have a climate emergency. And there's very few farmers that don't accept that we're not that, that we're some way immune to change. 
And uh, I believe we've constantly shown, even you know, you know, the acceleration and change in farm, even in the very recent past, has been huge. But we have shown that we're we're willing to adapt. We might need a bit more time and a bit more support, but uh, we we have shown our willingness to adapt and change and to adopt new practices. Yeah. Uh, do you believe uh, that your definition of change is in line with uh, government thinking or environmental thinking or scientific thinking? I, I do, because I suppose any opportunity that's been presented to us, be that through research or the adoption of new technology, like we have taken that and taken it on board. If you look at how farmers have changed, how they manage slurry management um, through LESS, low emission slurry spreading, the investment that's gone in there, uh, the change of fertilizer use, the introduction of new species into grass source to reduce fertilizer use, the focus on animal genetics. Um, and I think any opportunity that farmers have been given, that they've taken. Um, and what we, like I suppose, my message in terms of the, my, my comments to the Taoiseach and to both the Taoiseach and the Minister yesterday was that to not to make decisions now that are going to leave farmers behind. We have to, and I say we, and the, the point I make is that farmers and policymakers need to work together here. Mm. We have to make sure that we have an industry in the future that can grow because an industry that can't grow or can't attract new blood into it has no future. So, you know... You you weren't quite as pragmatic yesterday, were you? Uh, Because uh, you said that you believed that there was a guillotine movement uh, against farming and you asked uh, the Taoiseach uh, not to make decisions that would make farming a twilight industry. That's exactly what I said. I said to introduce a measure that would, in effect, guillotine the future on farmers or guillotine the sector in terms of stop the sector or, or, or restrict the sector would be disastrous because it would stop a flow of new people and new blood, new thinking into the sector. And, and what I said in my final line with them was, yeah, they do not make decisions that will create, make farming a twilight sector because we were there before. We were there before and we didn't attract new blood and the sector stagnated. And one of the things, and there's, you know, people criticise the dairy sector in particular, they criticise the expansion. But we need to remember that expansion has provided families with opportunities and has given economic well-being in rural Ireland. And now there's a bit of a change in how we have to manage our farms and work our farms. Mm. I think farmers are very open to that. But we need to work together in terms of government and policy makers. We can make sure that the bright future that many people have seen in farming, they can continue to see it. Do you believe farming is a, a soft target? I think at times, some people think it is, in terms of we'd be fearful that, that farming is expected to carry uh, a lot of responsibility early on in the, in, in the, in, in the, in the reduction targets. Um, you know, if you look at, like, like, you know, we do account for, you know, a, a large proportion of emissions, but, you know, we have shown that we're willing to change. And, you know, mm. the research bodies have shown an investment into those research bodies Shown there's a willingness, but the one thing I would say is that that you know was mentioned yesterday about the minister and the Taoiseach that the consumer is demanding you know more environmental sustainability. Mm. And the problem we have as farmers, and we saw it literally up in Loudoun Monaghan this week in terms of that farmers are adapting their process, they're, they're, they're adopting costs and adapting their practices to be more sustainable. Yet we're not seeing that return from the marketplace, mm. and we've seen with the dairy sector when mark when farmers are given a positive market signal that their milk was wanted, they produce more. Mm. because the money was in it. 
Yeah, well, I, 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 I think we'd probably both agree, Brian, that sometimes the consumer doesn't know what he, he wants uh, because we want uh, farmers to be environmentally friendly and to commit, uh, cut emissions, uh, but uh, we also want chickens uh, for 350. Uh, but we leave it there for the moment, and thanks morning, indeed uh, for Thank joining you. us this morning. Brian Rush is uh, the Deputy President of the IFA. That's our programme for today, for this week, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.